seated. We have heard a lot of heartbreaking things coming out of Ukraine. And one of the heartbreaking things that I've heard are stories of those who have been trapped, uh, who can't escape the enemy. And some of those folks that are trapped are trapped because of mobility issues, uh, elderly folks and uh, those who are disabled. I heard a young man in Kiev who was a soldier there in one report saying that many of the people still in the city are either disabled or elderly, and they're just not able to get out. They are trapped. And then we've heard stories of people who have tried to get out of cities through those so-called humanitarian corridors, uh, even, even individuals and even families trying to get out on these highways that are supposed to be safe routes, but then the enemy continues to bombard them with their artillery, and those folks have had to turn Back. And as I reflected on, on, on that in our gospel reading, I thought that in a way is a picture of human life apart from the grace of God. That we are trapped. We are trapped in sin, addiction. Uh, we are trapped by death and the fear of death and suffering. And we have a spiritual enemy who wants to keep us trapped and who wants to destroy our freedom and our dignity. But the good news that we're reminded of today in our gospel reading is that God has sent a deliverer in Jesus Christ, someone who can set people free. And we see this in our gospel reading, don't we? Jesus says to this woman with the disabling spirit, woman, you are freed from your disability. And then he he lays his hands upon her and uh, immediately it says she was made straight and glorified God. Luke is a um, careful historian says at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke that he took time to investigate the stories about Jesus. And, and so when we read the Gospel of Luke, we're, we're not reading any uh, sort of fable or make-believe tale. The Gospels are rooted in history. And, and occasionally you'll see these details that emerge in the narrative that speak to the historicity of the text. And here we have one. Luke adds this really touching historical detail that she had been bound for 18 years. 18 years in this condition. She wasn't able to stand up straight. Some commentators think that she had a spinal disease in which the bones of the spine would be fused together. So she lived with this pain for, um, for almost two decades. And she probably um, thought at one point or another that this was just a condition she was just going to have to live in. But perhaps she heard that there was a healer coming this day to the synagogue. Perhaps she heard that Jesus would be there and his reputation of healing preceded him. And there she was in the synagogue that day when Jesus was there. Now, Jesus attributes her physical infirmity to a spiritual problem. 
We are physical beings, but we're more than physical beings. We're spiritual beings as well. And so the spiritual affects the physical. And the physical can, uh, can affect the spiritual as well. So we know from Scripture that, uh, that not all sickness, of course, can be attributed to evil spirits. The Gospels don't attribute all sickness to evil spirits. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, there are times in the Gospels where they list the things that he did to heal and deliver people. And in those lists, there's a distinction between the physical healings and the exorcisms that take place. But sometimes those things overlap. And somehow in the case of this woman, there was this overlap between evil spiritual forces and her physical problems. But Jesus, when he sees this woman in the synagogue, compassion moves him. And I I love the way that Jesus interacted with people. It's a challenge for me to show this kind of compassion to folks. That he, first of all, saw her. Secondly, he called to her. Third, he spoke to her. Fourth, he touched her. And he dignified her. He healed her, and he called her a daughter of Abraham. What an example of compassion that we ought to have towards hurting people. To see them, to talk to them, to touch them, to dignify them. And as Jesus did this, immediately she was made straight. God of the Bible is a compassionate deliverer. God of the Bible is a compassionate deliverer. We see that in our Old Testament reading. God tells Moses, I've seen. I've seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cries. I know their suffering. The God of the Bible hears, sees, And knows about our suffering, our sorrow, and our pain. He's not a distant God removed from that. He's not like a distant father who's emotionally detached from his children. He's a good father who knows what his children are going through and what they need. He's compassionate. He sees, he hears, he knows the pain of people. And as wonderful as it is to understand that our God is a compassionate God, it's even more wonderful to know that he has the power to heal and to deliver. So he says, I've come down to deliver them. He's going to deliver them through Moses. And in Jesus' ministry of healing and exorcism, Jesus is saying to Israel, he's saying to his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, the same God that was at work in delivering Israel out of bondage from Egypt is at work in me. I am the delivering God. And he demonstrates that over and over again in his ministry. You know, Jesus' ministry of deliverance and healing continues today, doesn't it? 
continues today through his people. It continues through prayer, through counseling, through the practice of medicine, as Christians in the name of Christ help to lift up those who are bowed down and suffering today. His ministry of deliverance and healing continues. It continues in the realm of addiction and addiction recovery. I read, uh, this is according to Dr. Dale Matthews, a graduate of Duke University, in a book he wrote a while ago called The Faith Factor. He said that studies show that addiction recovery is often greater for people who pray and who are in religious recovery programs. And he cited one study where he said that the patients involved in a heroin addiction recovery program, if they were involved in a religious-based one, religious recovery programs, in this particular study were ten times more likely to be freed from heroin a year later than those who were not. Power of prayer. When it comes to physical healing, of course, we would love to have the success rate of Jesus Christ. 100% success rate. We fall woefully short of that. And oftentimes we wrestle with that as Christians. This is a sensitive area, the area of physical healing. And, and, and we see this great gap between our prayers for healing and what we see in Jesus and in the life of his apostles. Why do we have this gap? I'm going to say something really theologically profound. This is why I went to school for so long, to study theology. Jesus is different than us. (laughs) Jesus is the divine Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is unique. And his ministry of healing is not just about compassion. It is that. But it's also a sign of his identity. He performed signs and wonders to demonstrate that he is the Messiah of God. That he fulfills the prophecies of the Messiah like we have in Isaiah 61. That the spirit of the Lord is upon me to release those who are in captivity. To proclaim freedom. And so by his ministry of deliverance and healing, Jesus proclaims his identity. They are signs, John says, of who he is. So it's not a surprise that... We experience a much lower success rate when it comes to healing prayer. On the other hand, we can't give up. We cannot give up praying for people in faith in the name of Jesus. This is part of the ministry of the church. It's been part of the ministry of the church since the apostolic period and in the early church as well. Healing prayer. St. Augustine, and and actually we heard a line from St. Augustine this morning in our college. Our hearts are restless until they find a rest in you, God. That comes from St. Augustine. And St. Augustine, towards the end of his life, he wrote The City of God. And one of those chapters, I believe it's chapter 20, uh, book 22, chapter 8, if I'm not mistaken, he talks about miracles of healing and deliverance that were happening in his day. It's a really interesting because he goes into quite detail over people that he knew and People who were in his circle and these stories of healing and deliverance. And he says at one time in the city of God, he says that in a two-year period, there were 70 recorded miracles that happened that he could testify to. 
And so healing, prayer, and deliverance, that's been part of the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ. It's a huge part of the expansion of the church today in places like China, Africa, Asia, the healing ministry of Jesus. In our own family, in my family, my sister-in-law was healed of a cancerous tumor. When she went in for a scan, it showed a cancerous tumor. She went through a season of prayer and fasting. And before surgery, they took another scan and the tumor was gone. This has happened in my own family. The power of prayer in the name of Jesus. Yes, there's a lot of mystery around this topic. There's been a lot of uh, abuse and bad teaching about it. But that should not deter us from praying in faith for Christ to heal. And so I want to say to you today, if you're suffering today, physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, with addictions, we want to pray for you. We want to be a community of healing prayer. And we're trying to bolster, since the pandemic, our prayer ministry sort of subsided, but we're working now to renew our prayer ministry. We want to be a place where people can find freedom and wholeness in the name of Christ. But even as we do that, even as we pray for healing and deliverance, we don't forget that our ultimate healing comes in eternity. Our ultimate healing comes in heaven. We are made for a new heaven and a new earth. And God promises us a resurrected body, a body that's not going to be subject to suffering and death and sickness, and disease, and sorrow. That's our ultimate hope. Johnny Erickson Tata, who is a quadriplegic, she's been in a wheelchair for over 40 years. She writes in one of her books about, uh, about heaven and what she's going to be able to do with her res- in her resurrected state that she hasn't been able to enjoy here on earth. She talks about running and dancing. But she says the best thing about heaven will not be the running or the walking or the touching or the holding. The best thing about heaven will be a pure heart no longer weighed down by sin and selfishness. Salvation from sin and selfishness. And by trusting that Christ has died for our sin and was raised to eternal life, we have this hope. Christ, our deliverer, has won that for us. And so in this story, we see Jesus, our compassionate deliverer. But we see something else, don't we? We see something that we need to really take notice here because this is a compassion killer. We see another spirit at work. We see the spirit of compassion in the ministry of Jesus. But we see the spirit of religious legalism in the synagogue ruler. And that, friends, is a compassion killer. That can inhibit our ministry to hurting people. The spirit of religious legalism. The ruler of the synagogue, it says, was indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He said, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath. He wants a marquee. He wants this on the marquee of the Sabbath, the sign on the the outside the synagogue. Come for healing only on, you know, not on the Sabbath. Healing's closed on the Sabbath day. (laughs) There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath. What's this guy's problem? (laughs) 
it'd be easy to just dismiss him out of hand, but let's take a moment to try to understand his point of view, or we might miss a lesson here. There were Jewish leaders in Jesus' day who were very zealous for the law of God. And they were very zealous for their nation. So they had good intentions. And they looked around and they said, you know why our nation is in such uh, why our nation is such a mess and why we are oppressed and why we're under the, the boot of Rome? They said it's because we are not following the law of God. We've compromised. We've allowed the pagans, the Gentiles, the outsiders to influence us and compromise on the law of God. And they're influencing our children and they're influencing us. And they said, if we can just be faithful to the law of God, he will restore our nation. He will free us from our captivity. In fact, there was one rabbinical saying that went something like this. When all Israel keeps the Sabbath, just one Sabbath, if, they, if we would just keep one Sabbath perfectly, then the Messiah will come. And so they said, we need to be zealous for the law. And then if we obey the law, God will bless us, he will redeem us, he will save us. And at the heart of the law is this keeping of the Sabbath. That's part of central to Jewish identity. The sixth commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. On it you shall do no other work. And so for Jewish leaders who thought like this, when Jesus worked miracles on the Sabbath, they said, He's not with the program. He's undermining our identity and our hope as a nation. And other people are going to see that and get more and more lax when it comes to obeying the law of God. So we've got to put a stop to this right now. I mean, Jesus healed on the Sabbath over and over and over again to make a point. And in one place in the gospel, they said that once they started seeing Jesus do that, that's when they got the plan that we've got to destroy him. So this is a major clash between the vision of Christ and the vision of these religious leaders when it comes to salvation and, and, and the hope for the nation. But by performing this miracle on the Sabbath, Jesus was not breaking God's law. What he was breaking was the law that the rabbis had added to God's written word. He was breaking man-made legalistic traditions. And there's a lesson here, I think, for us, especially for those of us who've been Christians for a long time, because we can get legalistic about our rules and our traditions that are not found in the word of God, not clearly taught in the word of God. We have to watch that. Jerem Bars, who's a, who's a professor at Covenant Seminary, he wrote a book called Learning Evangelism from Jesus, and he writes about Christians making rules that are not found in the Bible. And uh, again, he says the intent, like, like the religious Pharisees, was often good. Uh, it, it's often good. We want to preserve our identity uh, as distinct from non-Christians. We want to remind ourselves that we are in the world, but not of it. We want to protect our children from the world. But then we start to make and generate these rules and get very legalistic about things that are not found in the Bible. And that's where it can get very dangerous. So he talks about Christians who make rules for other Christians about what they can see or not see, read, what they can wear or drink, rules about tattoos, and piercings. 
you know, somebody who got a nose ring and <laughs> it created quite a scandal in her very conservative home. And she came to Josie and I and said, I don't know how to handle this. This is not somebody in our congregation. But it created a rift in the family because of the nose ring. It created a rift for a while. But there's all these rules that we can add on who we should vote for and how we should think about politics. It can create division. And, of course, there are principles and moral standards in the Scripture. These are found in the written Word of God. We have to abide by what's written in the Word of God. These rules are given to us by a God of love who is for human flourishing. But religious legalism, Barr says this, he says, Religious legalism substitutes our ideas of what it means to be spiritual in the place of what God has said. That's the difference. Our ideas instead of God's ideas. And religious legalism can be a compassion killer because it creates divisions that are unnecessary. And we begin to see people as threats. They're doing this, they're doing that, they're threatening our identity. Instead of seeing people like Jesus saw them, hurting people, he saw them, he had compassion on them, he touched them. Religious legalism can signal to people, hey, you're not really part of us, and create unnecessary division and inhibit our ability to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the example of Christ calls us away from legalism toward the way of love and compassion. Jesus says to the people in the synagogue, uh, you care for your animals, don't you? You have compassion on your animals on the Sabbath. When your ox is tied up, you untie, you unbound the ox, and you let them go to water on the Sabbath because you care for their needs. You're taking care of your animals. How much more should you take care of a woman like this? A daughter of Abraham who's been bound for 18 years. He's exposing the hypocrisy and the hard-heartedness and his healing on the Sabbath. Not only was it not against God's Sabbath law, it was the perfect illustration of the meaning of God's Sabbath. Because one of the purposes of the Sabbath, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses says, you are to keep the Sabbath, and on that day, on the Sabbath day, Remember how God delivered you. Remember the great act of deliverance through, through Moses that he brought you out from slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That's part of the meaning of the Sabbath, a day to remember our God is a God of deliverance, Moses says. And now, centuries later, in this synagogue in Palestine, Jesus, with his outstretched arms, is delivering this woman. A picture of God's salvation. And she glorified God. She glorified God and the people glorified God for this deliverance. Friends, can you glorify God this morning for the way in which he's delivered you? Can you join the praise of this woman and the people in the synagogue also glorified God because of what they see? Because of this mighty act of deliverance. Can you glorify God? Maybe you can look back on your life and you can glorify God for physical healing that you've experienced or other people that you know have experienced. 
Maybe you can glorify God for mental healing. We can glorify God. We can give Him thanks and praise we ought to for the great miracle of salvation, the hope that we have of heaven because of what Christ has done for us. Let's glorify God for what He's done, for the ultimate hope of healing He's given us in Jesus Christ, and let's ask Christ to replace any hint of religious legalism in our hearts so that we can move with compassion towards hurting people today. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to glorify you as we reflect today on your great deliverance for your people and for us. We know that we're still in process, Lord. The healing is a process, and it's not going to be complete until we see you face to face. But we thank you for the work that you have done, the work that you're doing, and the work that you're going to do. And we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.